0: And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible-teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Well, Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 3, we just finished with verses 1 through 10 which is the easy part, uh, the fun part, if you will. Acts chapter 10, we have the healing of this man who was born lame. It's the very first story in this new section. If you recall, we finished the first section of Acts. It's broken into various uh, groups or sections or Acts, if you wish, if you want to think of it more like a narrative play. And this is the beginning of the next section and in it, it 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 begins here and ends in chapter eight. And one of the things that I asked you last time was to think about why in these in, in the book of Acts, why are these stories chosen? Why are they there? It's very expensive to write on papyrus. You don't have it just down at the uh, store. It's not like having some memo paper, scratch paper. Nobody had that kind of uh, stuff going on for them. It It was therefore something that you thought very hard before you began to write on a papyrus. Uh, And so every time you look at the book of Acts, you and I look at it through these Western eyes in a very wealthy nation where paper and time and energy and ink, none of that stuff really factors into your thinking. But it ought to, because the the books of the Bible were written on animal skins and and on papyrus and things such as this. And so they had to be very precise as to what they were going to write. It was an art. It was a science. And so we always want to be asking ourselves when we read something, why is it there? And so I made the point and I tried to drive it home in every possible way that the purpose of the healing of the, blind, uh, of the lame man had nothing to do with the lame man, though it was a great thing for him, but it was actually to establish the apostolic authority of these men who were the official messengers or spokesmen for Jesus Christ. They were his witnesses. So much so that I, draw, that I wanted you to understand that when we witness or we share the gospel and we share our testimony, we are, it's not so much our story that we're sharing. What we are to be sharing is the witness of the apostles. What did they witness Because they and they alone are the official witnesses, and what they wrote down in the rest of the New Testament is that official, inspired, authoritative word of God. And so the whole point of this was that they represent Jesus Christ to this world, they are the ones who are sent, which is what the word apostle simply means. And so Luke records this event from among various miracles that the apostles did, all of them establishing their authority as the ones who were now carrying on the message of Jesus Christ. So Paul writes this in uh, the, to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians. He says, uh, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance. How? How were they performed? By signs and wonders and miracles. And so this is why... It's important that you understand that what you see in the early part of Acts, you'll see several miracles being done, and you can get caught up in the miracle, but you need to understand that all all that's really happening is that they're establishing the apostolic authority of these men. But as I said also, it's not about the healing. What's really is the issue is who is Jesus? Jesus. And this is what I want you and I to concentrate on for the next two and maybe three weeks. I want us to remember what we, as Missio Dei, what we exist to be and what we are to do, to stop and to examine ourselves. So listen to me as your pastor, and I want you to hear it with sensitive ears. I want you to stop today, and I want you to examine yourself I want you, I don't want you to think about your children, your wife, your husband, your mom, your dad, whatever else will be the temptation for you. I want you to simply examine yourself before the Lord, and I want you to then potentially to begin to reorient yourself in a way that you ought to be and do and go. Because what we need to make sure that we're doing is we're doing what really matters. And so that requires us to begin with Jesus Christ. We we will do this, and we're going to do this very simply today by looking at the reaction of the crowd to this healing and then how Peter responds to the crowd. So it's going to be a very simple message. It will not be deep. It will not challenge you in any great theological way, but I do suspect that it will make, for some of you at least, a rather uncomfortable message to hear. I want you to examine yourself. I don't want you to assume that you are not part of this message. I want you to look at the response of the crowd, and then I want you to see the response that Peter does. Now, what we do too often is we open our Bible, and we treat it in a way that we should never treat it, but we do it all the time. In fact, I will uh, guarantee you that this happened to Grayson. I know it for a fact that it happened to Matt Miller, and I know it for a fact that it happened to me, that when you go into seminary and you start to have them open up the fire hydrant and they just are pouring this information into you, you're just trying to keep yourself afloat. Like Grayson, I work full time. He worked full time, so you had the full time work, and then you go, and you also have the school pouring all of this information into you, and you got papers, and and you know, like when I was learning Greek, uh, we had to learn fifteen new words every single class, and you had, and they didn't care if you fell behind; they just would flunk you. And so you just kept on learning more words and, and you're always having to draw all of that. And then you're learning all your grammar. And meanwhile, you're also learning all this theology and you're learning this information and you have papers and, and you have books to read. I remember one, my worst, uh, it was not bad for me because I like reading, but my worst uh, semester was 10,000 pages of reading that had to be done. That's a lot of reading. I don't care for how fast you read, 10,000 pages is a lot. And what happens is that you begin to look at the Bible as a task. You're learning everything, and you're working hard at it, and somehow it stops being what it really is, the Word of God. And one of the things I want to do in the book study with Hebrews is to help you not just study Hebrews as some uh, person who is on the outside acting as if you're the critic and you're deciding what you want to do or how you think about the Bible and and specifically the book of Hebrews. But I want you to become immersed into the book of Hebrews until it begins to change you as only the living word of God can change you. You are not a critic of the word. You are not a mere onlooker of the word. And you are not to ever treat it like you would as an academic. You are a servant to the word. You are under the authority of the Word. You are to be instructed by the Word. You are to repent of things that are revealed to you via the Word. The Word is to be speaking and working in your life in every way. And so it's very important that when we look at this passage and we begin to think about Jesus and we begin to look at the story and then what flows out of this wonderful healing, that we not look at it as if we're just some onlookers listening to Matt chat for an hour, but rather we are the servants of the Most High, and we are here to do his work, his work being the Lord's, not mine. So with that in mind, I want you to see the boldness that this man Peter has for the name of Jesus Christ, because it's all about Jesus. First of all, we can see the response by the people. So just look at verse 11. You'll see it. It's not hard to see. We see the man, he is healed. And this is a wonderful thing. In other words, things have happened that you could not have dreamed of. Things so wonderful. Things that this man would have never hoped would happen. He only hoped to have enough food for the day. He only hoped for enough coin that he could do what he needed to do to stay alive. That was his existence. He never dreamed. He didn't have it on his calendar. Today I get healed. I am going to call down the glory of God, or I am going to believe through positive thinking or bringing down faith and somehow working it to bring about this healing. This was a man in a horrible situation in life, and yet he had the most glorious thing that he never dreamed possible happen to him. In my reading, I, can't, I, I had read Psalm 16, so I put it in, uh, in my sermon notes, as you see. It says that you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. And this man would stand now, and he would dance before you, and he would say, that is true. I never dreamed this was possible. I never hoped this was possible, and yet this man, Peter, healed me in the name of Jesus Christ. This is a man who for his entire life was outside of the world of worship. He couldn't enter in to offer his sacrifices. He was an unclean man. All he could do was stand on the periphery as an outsider with everyone assuming that either he or his parents were guilty of some sin that caused him to be afflicted in this way. He knew what they were thinking because that is how they thought. He was a man who was lame. He was a man who would be crippled, a man who would be outside of all of society. And the only thing that he could hope for was to have pity. But he was a man. And men don't need pity. Men ought not to receive pity. That's not what he needs. He needed to be whole. He needed to be able to marry and to have children and to labor honestly with his hands, and then bring that money that he labored through his labor and bring it to provide for his family. That's what men need to do. He needed to be able to guide his family to the temple, to raise them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, to declare every day, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord your God is one God. But he had none of that. Instead, he begged, and he hoped. Hoped for what? Healing? No. That wasn't on his radar. He just hoped for a little bit of money. But money that he didn't earn, money that others earned. And so when the healing occurred, It's interesting because he shows no social awkwardness at this point, no shyness. He would have been the type of person that is easily invisible. You would walk by him every single day to the temple. Everyone knew him. But once he is healed, he is all over the place. He is up. He is laughing. He is rejoicing. He is praising God. His the face is now in the face of everyone else as a witness, a man that should not be doing what he's doing, now walking and dancing and running and skipping and everything else that he wants. He is finally free from the thing that bound him, the thing that kept him in weakness, that kept him in constant need. And this must have been a feeling beyond comprehension. And this is where we can start listening to this as if we're dispassionate onlookers. Can you try, just try to crawl into the skin of this man for a moment? And imagine what that must have been like. He had nothing. He was hopeless. Some of you carry affliction in your body. Not all of you, but some of you and some greater than others. Could you imagine yourself fully healed and made whole from one moment of hopelessness to one of incredible strength and energy and vitality? Old men, let's try it with just you, the old guys. Think back, if you can, to the days of your youth. I still remember them. Do you do you remember when the testosterone was flowing so strong through your body when you were seventeen? I have three holes in one of my doors of my old house, and they're there because my son punched them why i don't know dad i just, i just i I felt like I had to punch something, and he wasn't angry. he just needed to punch something. Do you remember those days men where where so much energy is just buzzing through you that you randomly just like Crank out 50 push-ups because you got it. And women, you don't understand it because you don't have this. You have different stuff, which we don't talk about. (laughs) I'm just saying we don't. But I remember those days. I remember those days where you were just, you felt light on your feet, right? And and you had that spring and at any moment you'd break out in some kind of activity or a wrestling match. And there was just the sheer exertion of the muscles that brought you incredible joy. Do you remember those days? Muscles that would work the right way. They didn't scream and protest. You didn't groan. You didn't have to rest for a couple of days to recover. You just went out and you played and you fought and you wrestled and you ran and you pulled and you lifted. Remember when lifting heavy things was fun? I mean, really heavy things and you did it. I remember once my father asked me, he he said, Matt, come out, I need your help. I need to get this camper shell off of the pickup. I'm like, okay. And he, he's like, so anyhow, and he's being dead, right? And he's like, so let, let me loosen this and loosen that. And he's like, okay, you get in. And, and, and he's like, I'll grab this end and you get that side. And on three, we'll, we'll try to get this up. So then I just stood up and lifted it. I'm like, so where do you want it, dad? And he's like, shut up. <laughs> but, you know, I, I felt good just doing that. Do you know what I'm talking about, men? Those days, and they're gone for you, and they'll never come back, right? And you know it. That's what happened to this man. He never thought he would have a day. His life was one of misery, of poverty, of shame, of being always on the outside. And then in one magical moment, it all changed. But notice in verse 8 of chapter 3, he knows where it came from. That's why he's praising as he's walking and leaping. He, all he's doing is testing out his, his muscles. He's feeling things he's never felt before. And the whole time he's praising God. He knows where it came from. It's not Peter. It's God. Everything is coming from God. And, and as a result of this man, the crowd notices the crowd now reacts. This is a day, this day goes from a very more mundane, boring, everyday type of experience to something of great excitement. In verse 10, it says that they're in wonderment. Everything that they had assumed about this day was no longer what happened. This little moment in time now became the thing that everybody would talk about. And so they run up to Peter. And the layman who were at the portico of Solomon, which is just around the temple grounds was this covered porch with all of these many colonnades, and it was large, very large. And it protected you from the weather. It was a place where you would gather and conduct business and meetings and things like that. This is where people would teach. In fact, Jesus taught there at this uh, portico. The early church, we'll find in chapter 5, met there for instruction And so they're all gathering around there. They're all rushing away from the Holy of Holies and the place where they were heading and where they were going to offer sacrifices and where the the prayers were going to take place. Instead, they're moving into this big, massive area called the Porch of Solomon. And they want to see. They want to see. What happened? What happened? They see the man dancing. Today, if that happened, every one of them would have had their phone out and every one of them would have been doing a video, and you'd be seeing it pop up on the Twitter, and next thing you know, it'd be the new trending video, and so on, and so on. This was an immensely important event for them, and Peter responds. And so while he was clinging in verse 11 to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon. They were full of amazement, I want you to know what happens in verse 12. But, But when Peter saw this, he replied to them. Peter sees a crowd gathering and he speaks, which tells us that when he noticed all of a sudden the crowd is coming at him, that he never intended this to be a crowd thing. This was not a carefully manufactured event where the marketing guys in the church are saying, all right, so we need to get our brand out. And we need to get this going. And so what we're going to do is we're going to stage this, make certain that, that you heal the guy, but do it in this way. We'll create a commotion and everyone will see it and then they'll all be amazed. And then we can start handing out the little cards and letting them know that the next service will be on this day. And hey, if we can, we're trying to arrange a helicopter to drop toys. During this moment, we'll we'll see if we can get it worked out. That's how it would work today. The garbage that takes place in churches. Peter just saw a lame man. That's all he saw. He was just going on his way with John, and they were going to go do the pray the prayers. I'm sorry, and in, in the temple, and he sees a man, and he heals. But it doesn't matter. A crowd gathers. And so he then sees an opportunity, and he speaks. And that's what I want you to do today. I want you to think about what we actually see here. I want you to think and listen. I want you to not think about someone else. I just want you to think about you. Seriously. I want you to consider how you are functioning in light of the purpose of Missio Dei Fellowship. Misio Dei, the mission of God, the fellowship, that thing that we share in, that that thing we participate in, that common faith and common life in the Spirit through Jesus Christ. We all share in that. That koinonia, remember? That fellowship we share. One of the aspects of that is God's mission that He's given to us. The missio day. I want you to ask yourself how am I participating in that mission? More importantly, how are you as a Christian functioning in a very fallen, broken world? In John 20, verse 21, a verse that we have heard many times, Jesus said, peace be with you as a father. Notice, as the father has sent me, I also send you. Every believer in this room is a sent Christian. The Father sent Jesus in with a mission, and Jesus faithfully did that mission. And he also then, starting with the apostles, sent us into this world. Go over to John 17, if you will. It's just a few pages. John 17, the great prayer of Jesus before going to the cross. And in verse 14... John 17, verse 14, down to 20. I'll just make a few quick comments. Now, I've got the 1975 edition so of the New American Standard, so I have the words thy and thou and stuff, so work with me on that. Jesus is praying. And he says, I have given them thy word. He's talking to his father that them are the apostles. And the world has hated them. Why? Because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Remember that, that the gospel brings us out of this age. I do not ask thee to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. I want you to keep them in the world, even though they're not of the world. But I do ask you to keep them from Satan. They're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Therefore, set them apart, make them holy, or sanctify them in the truth. Not just truth, the truth. What is your truth? Thy word is truth. As thou didst send me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify, set myself apart to this holy task of dying on the cross. I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. And then just in case you think he's only talking about them, he says, I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. In other words, Missio Dei, fellowship, right? Right. Every one of you believe because of the word of the apostles. The fact that they went forth into the world and they brought the gospel and they testified what they saw and heard and they wrote these things down and they declared them, you and I heard these. And so, every one of you who's ever gone through a membership class here have heard us say to you that we are saved out of this world by the gospel. And then Jesus sends us right back into the world with the gospel. And therefore, everything we do ought to be defined by and adorn the gospel. And so just last week, we enjoyed watching many people get baptized. We enjoyed listening to their testimonies. And all of that was something worth rejoicing over. But I ask you, how carefully did you listen to the testimonies? Did you hear and consider yourself in light of what they were saying? You had young people who were referring to the faithfulness of their moms and dads who raised them in the gospel from their birth. These are not parents who touched lightly and vaguely and round about upon the gospel. These were moms and dads that faithfully instructed their children in the way of salvation. They were immersed, if you will, in the truth and the reality of the gospel. And they said this, I believe, at a tender young age. We rejoice in that. You had older people, though, who talked about how they had rebelled and resisted the gospel, that their parents and friends, though, stayed faithful to their call. These children did not believe at an early age. These children shook their fists and yawned and rolled their eyes and mocked their mom and dad behind their back and maybe in their face. They were people of rebellion. But mom and dad didn't give up, and mom and dad still kept the main thing the main thing. They gave them no quarter. They gave them no empty platitudes. They kept putting the gospel in front of their children's face, even into adulthood. And then you heard testimonies of those who had never heard the gospel before until someone told them. Somebody began to tell them about Jesus. Somebody or some people began to give of them their time and their energy and their comfort so they could speak truth. You had parents who refused to be too busy You had spouses and family members who chose to talk and not retreat in times of difficulty. You had men or women who gave up their free time and their pursuits just so they could spend time with somebody with the gospel. Now look at Peter. He's not here to preach. That's not why he came, guys. He was coming to the temple with John for the prayers. That He had an agenda. The agenda was very simple. Hey, John, it's time for the prayers. Let's go up to the temple. And they're going up. They see the man. Peter can't give him anything, but he can give him a healing. He is an apostle. He has that authority and that power. He heals the man. Crowds are now freaking out. They're rushing up. They want to know what's happening. And everything that he planned on doing goes out the window. Everything. He sees the crowd. Now, he could have said, guys, guys. It's prayer time. I gotta go do my prayers. If you guys are still around, I'll check my calendar and maybe we can arrange a time. Let's see. I got I gotta be somewhere. No. He looked at the crowds and he considered it and he made a decision. He doesn't have a sermon tucked in his tunic just in case. He was on his way to pray but he realizes that he needs to do something, and he does it. But he does it because he's already made certain decisions in his mind, and that's what I'm really driving at in this wandering sermon of mine, is I'm trying to get you to begin to be prepared to hear what I'm going to give you, which are seven quick observations about Peter's response to a crowd that needs Jesus Christ. I want you to think about what you're going to do time and time and time again, hopefully, when you have situations arise before you that you've already thought through what you're going to do so that that part is not an issue, you just can respond. Because Peter looks at this crowd and he doesn't say, Hey, John, what do you think we should do? I don't know. Let's, let's, let's go seek counsel. Oh, I don't know. I got, we got the prayers. What are people thinking if I don't go in and do the prayers? Blah, 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 blah. You can just hear how that would be very easy to happen. Peter turns around. The crowds are there and he speaks. The first thing, the first observation, he did not wait. For some opportune time, he just sees the moment. What I want you and I to understand is that God is calling us to be bold. Not some of us, all of us, Peter was a timid man. Peter was a man who was afraid of a servant girl when he was being challenged on whether or not he followed this man, Jesus, and he lied and he would curse. He did everything in his power to not own up that he was a follower of Jesus. The, the, the rooster crows three times and he is a broken man. Now he's not. What happened? Well, one, he has the spirit of God that you have if you are in Jesus Christ. And two, he had made some decisions in his mind. He had made some decisions about what he was going to do or not do. He didn't look for an opportune time. He seized the opportunity when it was there. It was not manufactured. It was not anything else. It was not convenient to him. It just happened. And so he took it. There are some people who will uh, who are incredibly good at sales because they don't wait for the guy to come up to them and say, hey, you know, I was wondering, do you have a product that I have no reason to think you have, but that you might be willing to sell me? And then the salesman's like, well, sure, I actually happen to have a brochure in my back pocket, and you give it away and a card, and, and next thing you know, on Monday morning, first thing you're doing is you're calling the person, hey, I just want to follow up. That's what salesmen do, Right. That's not how it works. You don't wait for somebody to come to you. You're out there making sales. you got to meet with people, developing a client base, getting repeat, and all of that kind of stuff. And yet somehow when we get into the issue of the gospel, we keep saying, Father, give me opportunity. When he's saying to you, beloved, I put you in opportunity. You all are in that opportunity. You have neighbors and coworkers and friends and family. They're surrounding you. They're pressing in on you. You're asking me to make it convenient for you, and I would argue that God will not do that. Now, notice second that He's interested in shifting the focus off of the apostles and onto Christ. In verse twelve. He saw this, he replied to the people, he said, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this or why do do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered up and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you disowned him the holy and righteous one, and ask for a murderer to be granted to you. That was sweet, right? That was a gentle, kind entranceway into the gospel, that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for you. You murderers. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you guys, I'm talking to you. You murderers, you people who disowned. Why are you looking at us? We're not the ones. It was Jesus, the one you killed. He did it. It's a huge issue today. With the advent of social media, how often have you and I maybe been guilty of posting a picture of us with a coffee mug and some book or our Bible open, and we're getting ready to delve into the deep secrets of our Jesus? yeah. Maybe. I, I'd rather just, when you guys leave your Bibles, you don't really believe how much I go through every one of your Bibles that you leave here. I sit down, I literally do. I, 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 I'm looking for underlines. I'm looking for notes. I'm looking for any indication that you use it. That you know it and you love it. That you're convicted by it. I don't need coffee mugs and pictures. You don't need to be posting them. We don't need to be doing it. What we need to be doing is being busy about the task of following Jesus Christ. But we want everyone on social media to know that we're busy about contemplating Jesus. It's not, that's not devotion. It's not worship. It's, it's a self-worship, a self-acclamation. We're not exhorting our brothers and sisters to read and to pray or worship what we're doing is we're really letting them know that at that very moment we are looking like we may be doing some really good things peter did not heal these this man to attract these people he just simply healed the man because he needed healing Peter is not about making himself look like a spiritual man with great power and authority. He's interested in talking about Jesus. Peter is not in focus here. Peter, frankly, doesn't care what you think of him. He is not self-conscious. And I can tell you that if you are a self-conscious individual, until you learn to die to yourself, you will not be a bold Christian. You will not be bold to speak the gospel. The third thing I want you to see in this passage is that truth is far more important to Peter than their feelings. In verses 13 through 15, I'll just pick up back up in verse 14. But you disown the holy and righteous one and ask for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are what? Witnesses. You killed him. God sent him, he was the promised one, and you killed him. God raised him from the dead, but you killed him. This was what he starts out with. This is his opening lines. This is his easing himself into the gospel. He's so forthright. He's not talking in vague ways. He's not saying, well, some we've heard may have disowned this man, Jesus. No, he says, you're the guilty ones. In fact, he's acting like Nathan the prophet when he goes before David and he says in good King James English, thou art the man. When was the last time, beloved, you talked to a person like that? When was the last time that you looked at a person and said, look, We can talk all day long, but the bottom line is that you're dead in your sins and you're at enmity with God. And unless you repent and you turn to Jesus Christ, you have no hope. When was the last time you spoke like that? When was the last time you looked with a sense of urgency that said, I don't care what you think of me. You need to hear this. I'm not saying obnoxiously, just truthfully. When did you tell a person that they're in a desperate situation? As a pastor for many years now, I've had that opportunity to ask a question time and time again to people. The question is, hey, pray for my, and you can fill in the blank. I'm like, okay, um, what's going on? And, and they'll tell me, well, really bad situation, this going on, this and this. We don't know. Uh, they're going to see the doctor. We're, we're waiting. Just pray for them. Okay. Are they a Christian? Uh, I think so. That's a person you need to go be bold with. If you think so, then you don't know. And they need Christ. They need Christ and they're running out of time, and they need to hear. And you keep inviting them over for family get-togethers, or a beer, or an outing, or this, or that, but you never get around to being truthful to them about what is true. The necessity of speaking the gospel, beloved, is that you have to speak about negative things, you have to speak in things that will be offensive, like you disowned him, you crucified him. And no amount of carefully orchestrated speech will soften the words of the gospel when it describes you as God's enemy, dead in your sins, an enslaved to the God of this world, Satan, a slave to your own lusts and your own desires, and heading to an eternity under the constant, infinite wrath of God. There is no way you can say that nice. Go to 1 Corinthians 1 now with me, just briefly give you an outline for you to think about. In verses 20 to 29, 1 Corinthians 1, 20 to 29 Peter, not Peter, Paul has to deal with the Corinthian church. You know, if if Paul had been alive during emails, every time a new email came in from the, you know, at Corinth.net, he would have been like, oh Lord, what's next? Because they were an obnoxious group of people. They 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 were saved, they were Christians, but they were hard to deal with. And he's dealing with all of these problems. And he's trying to get them to grasp certain things. And right away in the first chapter, he says this in verse 20. He says, where is the wise man and where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? In verse 20, he introduces these two types of wisdoms. There's this wisdom of the world... And then he builds off of that, that there is also the wisdom of God. In the mind of the world, meaning the non-Christian, what we believe is foolishness. But God says, I will make their wisdom become foolishness, and my foolish wisdom will become wisdom. The gospel is the source of that foolishness. In verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. No amount of of studying Aristotle or Plato or anybody else that the Corinthians would have been studying will ever bring them to the knowledge of God. Instead, God was well-pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. The gospel is foolish. In verse 22, he says that you can't reach people by attracting them according to their wants. He says, for indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we, we preach what? In verse, next verse, Christ crucified. You want signs, you want wisdom, I'm going to give you Christ. Dead on a cross for our sin." And he says that Christ crucified, that to the Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. Because they say, I want signs and I want wisdom, and what we're presenting to them in the gospel doesn't fit what they demand it to be. They reject him. So the reaction in verse 23 is that many will be negative. It's Something they stumble over, they think is stupid, and they'll mock, and they'll laugh, and they'll roll their eyes, and they'll tweet mean things, and they'll post things on their Instagram about being an evangelical and all of the other silliness, and we get all intimidated, but it's supposed to happen. It's supposed to happen. We don't care about what they do. We only care about being faithful to the message that they will stumble over or they will call foolish or something else will happen. In verse 24, we then see that other. But to those who are the called, whether they're Jews or Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. As we preach this, some believe. Some believe. In verse 26, he says that you're worse than you think. He says in verse 25, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men, for consider your calling. So you guys, right here, me. What is our calling? That there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. No, no, what God chose was the foolish things of the world. Are you comfortable with that? Have you embraced the fact that you are a foolish thing? That God chose you? That he saved you? And he's not impressed with how smart you are or how wise you are, and he certainly didn't save you because of those things. He chose the foolish things so he can shame the wise. And then verses 27 to 29, and the base things of the world, the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are. Why? So that no man should boast before God. Do you believe that the gospel is designed to be the way it is so that God and God alone gets the glory? And don't nod your head too quickly. Do you believe that? Do you, are you convinced that the gospel exists because God is designed to receive the glory? Do you walk around this world grasping that God chose you out of this world because you are the base, the despised, and the foolish? Are you comfortable with that? Fourth, for Peter, he prepared, was he is prepared by knowing the gospel and the biblical story. Back to Acts 3. He just starts out and he goes right at the crowd. It sounds very simple, but I want you to do is I want you to go home today and over this week, and you can do it if you belong to a community group, it's very simple to do. I want you to ask one another, what is the gospel? Everyone in your household, just ask them, what is the gospel? Just tell me. And, and for those of you who are theologically adept, show a lot of kindness. You're not asking for them to sound like John Owen in the death of death of the death of Christ. We don't need that, but do they know the gospel? Do they know it? You'd be amazed at how often I ask people, what is the gospel? And they immediately, oh, pastor's asking, and, and, and they're tripping over themselves, and somehow Satan is God, and, and, you know, and that involves pixie dust. You got to know the gospel, guys. You got to know it. You got to know it more than just to believe it. You got to know it well enough that you can tell somebody what you believe. What is the gospel? How easily does it come to your mind? It's not a time to impress others. It's just simply designed to show you how well you know it. Something weird happened to me. I went to seminary. I was well-trained. I was well-taught. A lot of information was given. There's a class that was called ordination practicum in my school. And in it, you were, I mean, the most basic thing, of course, you have to have the books of the Bible memorized, which I found fascinating that shouldn't every seminarian have the books of the Bible memorized, but you quickly find out that that's not the case. But you also, at the end of this course, you had to be able to, by memory, uh, at any moment, be able to outline every single book of the Bible as to its contents. You had to have a whole lot of scripture memorized that you could uh, quote back at any moment when anyone asked you. You had to be capable of standing up before Board of Elders and have them instruct and ask you questions on any issue related to systematic, biblical, canonical, or practical theology and give answers, including the passages by memory, with no help. You had all of this stuff that you had to do. But you know what they never asked you to do? What's the gospel? And when I came here a long time ago, I had somebody ask me, what's the gospel? And I was not very good at saying it. How did I walk out of college and seminary and not be very good at just saying, this is the gospel? I got so caught up in the intricacies of the gospel, the depth of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel, that I have just somehow forgot the gospel. So I'm not telling you this because I'm up here and you're down there. I'm telling you this because I got confronted with this. Can you tell people what the gospel is? Go home and find out. Do you know the story of the Bible? Do you know where we came from, and do you know where history is heading? Do you read your Bible, or are you one that only begins to read it, and then you move on to the things you care about? Can you tell the people the story of the Bible? Many of us can give a few verses here or there. We can even maybe say the basics of the gospel. But then you get a question asked, and 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 you're, it's like somebody knocked the legs out from under you. Every father or mother who sat in with me when I interview their children for baptism knows what that's like, where I'm sitting there, I'm trying to make the little guy feel comfortable. And it's like, so you want to be baptized? Yeah. Well, why? Well, because I'm now a Christian. Okay, so what makes you a Christian? And so then they think, and, and they're sort of like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. And I'm like, I know you know, it because I know your mom and dad. So I help them out. But then eventually I said, well, tell me what the gospel is. Well, Jesus died for my sins. Good, good answer, right? What do you mean he died for your sins? And you watch their whole hope crumble. What, what does that mean? Now, as we work it through, they start to realize, oh, no, I know this answer. And, and it takes help with them because they're just a young person. But I've watched old people crumble before me. So what do you mean he died four years? Since? Well, you know, for him. No, that's my question. What's that mean for them? Well, you know, for them. Okay, you can change your emphasis on the word for all you want, but it still hasn't explained to me what for means. For, well, like, I don't know, you know. I know, I know. Do you know? Why did Jesus die? And don't say for my sins, unless you know why. What's that mean? And he rose again. Why? Why is that important? Why? Why is it important? What was accomplished in his resurrection? The reason that people give us blank looks when we ask them maybe what the gospel is, is they have not trained themselves to be ready to give an answer for the hope that they have. But we're commanded by Peter to always be ready. If you really know what the Bible says about God and man and salvation and judgment, then you will also be able to know that there are certain non-negotiable truths that the Bible lays down, and there's a ton of them. Just by example, you cannot serve God and money, right? The Bible says it. Jesus said, you cannot serve God and money, and yet I have witnessed and you have witnessed. Countless people work really hard at trying to do both. The world is passing away, the scripture says, but the one who does the will of God does will live forever, non-negotiable. You either follow God or you don't, but one is passing away and one brings life. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, which was, is it? It's a non-negotiable. Is your mind being conformed into Christ or this age? It's one or the other. There's no middle ground. Little children, do not be deceived. The one who lives out righteousness is righteous, like God, but the one who lives out sin belongs to the devil. That's First John. No middle ground. Jesus said there's a broad path and many are on it, but it leads to destruction. But then there is this narrow path that few shall be on, but it leads to eternal life. Which path are you on? Because you're all on it. Fifth. Peter is ready to be hated. He has no problem looking at this crowd. He didn't plan for this. He didn't ask for it. All he did was heal a guy, but now he's got to talk to these people, and he's not there to talk about how God wants to take away their sicknesses. He confronts them with their sin and their need to repent. He is willing to lose friends. You have to be willing to lose friends. You have to be willing to lose influence. You have to be hated by the very people that you are talking to in order that they might be saved. So what are you afraid of? You have to do it. What are you afraid of? Don't lie to yourself right now. That's why I'm saying, and don't you dare start thinking about other people, what they should be listening. Ooh, you, what are you afraid of? I want you just to answer this with God alone as your witness. What are you afraid of? A man named Walter Martin. Some of you may know who he was. He's now with the Lord. He said that a problem that still exists today is that the church suffers from non-rockabotus, which is his little humorous way of saying we don't want to rock the boat, and that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring the gospel to people we love, but we're trying not to rock the boat. You can't. You gotta. You're going to. Christ will upset everything because he demands absolute lordship. We are in a fight. We're in a spiritual war. We're not showing ourselves, though, perhaps to be warriors of the faith. Six, he is convinced beyond anything else that the gospel is the only way a person can be saved and made right. We'll get into this in depth over the next couple of weeks, but... He's this way to them, not because he wants to be a jerk or talk about how he owned them. He wants them to repent. You are to love these people that God has put you among because you love them like Jesus loves them. And Jesus always spoke the truth, always. When he spoke to the weary and the heavy laden, he offered them rest. But only if they came under his yoke only if they came under his yoke and followed him. To the one who rejects grace and life, he left them with the promise of hellfire. Kind words will never save a person. Modest clothing will not save a person. Helpful acts will not save a person. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing God has given to us by which a person will be saved from God's wrath. We'll see it in the next chapter, but Peter says there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So again, are you convinced of that, beloved? Not your spouse, you. And then lastly, he's bold. He speaks what needs to be said, not because it's fun, but because it's truth. And he has to speak it. And he can't apologize for it. He has to declare it. If you believe it's true, then you must be bold. Some of you are so bold about the vaccine. And some of you are so bold about not getting the vaccine. I wish you to be bold about Christ. We have to not offer any quarter, but it means that we have to believe it, that there is no middle ground, that no man, no woman, no child will ever come to faith because you're nice and vague. Monsieur Day Fellowship, therefore, is named on purpose to put in our mouths the calling of all who are part of this church. I, I know some of you don't like the name. I don't really care. It's our name. And I want you to realize it is the, the name of the church for a purpose. We are on mission for God. We share in this fellowship of common faith in Jesus Christ, and it is a mission God has sent us. A key part of how we gather is to confess and to share and to participate in that gospel. We are equipped, and then we go back into the world with that gospel to actually engage people, not talk about engaging, but actually engaging. The Southern Baptist Convention had a campaign recently. We didn't participate because, well, why doesn't matter. There was reasons, but it was simply called this. It was a campaign called, Who is Your One? The idea is good. Stop thinking about things on vague terms. Instead, identify your one. In other words, who is the one person God has put you among and with that you might speak the gospel. And don't take the easy out. Say, oh, I'll I'll, I'll make my wife or my husband or my kid the one that you've been telling forever. I'm saying, find somebody unique who's going to be your one. That's the first step. And I can tell you, if you don't start there, you'll never go anywhere. God has placed people in your life, so identify just one of them and commit to bring them the gospel. And don't make it private. Commit and tell others that this is your one. Then, create up a plan to serve and to care for them in very specific ways. It can be a word of encouragement, maybe, right? It's sitting down with them over coffee, just getting to know them. If you don't know them that well, this is where you begin to step into that mission field that God has placed you and own the fact that you're out there in the mission field, so I'm going to act like a missionary, where I'm going to begin to engage them in other words, just what every missionary out in the field actually does. Then begin to pray for them, really pray, not just toss their name in on the, on, the, on the aside, but actually pray for these people, my one, and then go talk to them. Beloved, it can really be this simple. I'm a Christian. I don't know if you knew that but would you mind if I kept in prayer this situation you just told me about? That's something my wife does. She prays for more people simply because she hears them talk about, oh yeah, this happened, this. And it's like, would you mind if I just kept that in prayer for you? And they never turn her down. And if they do, she still prays for them. And then she still follows it up with them. How is this going on? How is that? That's a simple way. Now they know you're a Christian, but they also know somehow, and we don't know why, and we think it's a little strange, but they're praying for it. You ask them this. What do they believe? What is their spiritual background? And you got to be ready today in our world of paganism to hear anything. You include comments about church in a very simple, natural way in your conversation. And then it's easy to ask where... Were they raised? Were they raised in anything? I mean, have you asked your neighbor? I don't know anything about you. I mean, do you guys, Did you? were you raised up going to church or anything like that? You'd be amazed. It's just a conversation. It's not weird. It's only weird to you because you're now under attack because you're in the spiritual warfare to keep your mouth shut. But all you got to do is say, I don't care what people think. I'm just going to ask. And then you bring them the gospel. But you'll never do it, beloved, if you're not prepared to act and to live like Peter, the apostle, did. Until you accept that life is not about you and about your needs and about your desires, it won't matter. Until you understand that truth is more important than anything else, it won't matter. Until you learn the gospel inside and out not just the facts, but the whole storyline of Genesis to Revelation and what God is doing, you will not speak it well. But here's a big one. Until you're willing to be hated, you will not share the gospel. And that will not happen until you are convinced that nothing else matters in the end. Let's pray. Father, Father, as we begin to touch our toes into this sermon that this man did, on a, literally on a moment's notice, so rich in Bible and the scripture and theology and truth and the gospel and life, until we see that this is a man who looked at a people who were lost and in rebellion and under the wrath of God, I pray that as we begin to look at this passage that you will do a work in our hearts that will cause us to grow in boldness. That we'll shake off the lethargy of this age, the many things that we are distracted by, the many things that we have replaced the gospel with, and that we repent. That we'd be men and women, bold, young and old alike, that we would begin to engage this community with the only thing that really matters. That we put away our many arguments over the many things that we might righteously be angry over, and that we become burdened for the lost who do not know Jesus Christ. Open our eyes to that. Help us not to operate out of guilt, but out of the glory of the gospel, but also the need to embrace it in life and deed and word. I ask in your son's name. Amen. And now may we stand firm against the spiritual powers that press upon us in the strength of the Lord and in his might. May we take up the full armor of God so that we might resist and stand fast in these evil days. May we walk in the peace that comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we live in the power of the Spirit to the glory of the Father. Amen.